if there was any sin, it was that these people wanted to keep having a good time forever and were punished for that. But as I say, I feel that if so, the punishment was far too great. And I prefer to think of it only in a Greek or morally neutral way, as mere science, as deterministic, impartial cause and effect. I loved them all, those that embraced the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. friends episode 192 of embrace the void where we are working to reopen the social economy i am your host aaron and this week we are discussing a little bit of theory a little bit of agency a little bit of this a little bit of that so let's make with the dialectic life ends in death which we as a species are cursed with knowing resulting in Something. My guest this week is Lillian Sisertia, a postdoc in social philosophy at Free University of Berlin and a co-host of What's Left of Philosophy Pod. Lillian, would you like to say hi to the voids? Hey, voids. How are you? Thanks for having me, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. I've been having such a great time chatting with all the folks from my new uh, favorite philosophy podcast. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and talk about one of my very favorite hobby horses. <laughs> Before we get to agency, though, do you want to let folks know a little bit about sort of where you're coming from philosophically and what your interests, what your focuses are, generally speaking? Yeah, I work in critical theory and social philosophy. My specialization is in political economy, and I also publish a little bit in feminist philosophy, but um, I'm writing a book on sort of critical theories, reception of political economy, and sort of reconstructing the critique thereof. So um, yeah, that's what I'm up to. Interesting. Can you say a little bit about what political economy means in that context and how you see it being sort of integrated with that critical theory stuff? Yeah. So one, the critique of political economy is taken from Marx's critique of political economy. Mm -hmm. And it was an argument that, you know, capitalism is unjust or basically unfree as that's the critical part. And then the social theory or the the part in which you actually do political economy is basically trying to figure out how the class structure of different societies evolves over time and the constraints 
that it places on human populations. And, you know, what philosophers contribute to that is we say what's wrong with that picture. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we, we give the we give the moral and the normative texture to that. But basically, I think the critique of political economy has been largely abandoned in critical theory. There's some new interest in it in the sense that capitalism is actually back as like a category of something that we care about. You know, it's a system that we give a name to mm. again, which tends to happen when capitalism is in crisis and it tends to wane when capitalism is going better. So Mm. there's a kind of renewed interest in theorizing about capitalism. I'll put it that way, but um, there's sort of anxiety about it because there's anxiety about talking too much about the economy, being economistic, class reductionism. And what ends up happening in my opinion is that one does not actually end up talking very much about the economy. It always tends to be this kind of lingering background condition of the critiques, and we're always trying to supersede it, go beyond it, avoid being accused of being reductionistic, and so on. And so I'm trying to understand like what, why philosophers are so anxious about this and how, how to mm-hmm. avoid thinking about it in that way. That's really interesting. So the class reduction thing is something that I've seen come up a lot in sort of like inner scene conflict on the left, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like this is a tension between what we think of as the the quote unquote woke social justice aspect of the left and the like. I mean, like in the most sort of t- two-dimensional description, right? You have like the Marxists who want to talk about the economy and then you have the like identitarian folks who want to talk about superstructure mm-hmm. identity, social, social stuff like that um and it seems like those folks tend to be the ones who will um sort of lob those accusations of of reductionism right against the marxists is that how you Mm -hmm. sort of perceive the discourse having played out yes i think that's a good gloss on it i think reductionism has recently become a sort of smear to delegitimize social democratic policies and i think people have different ways of interacting with that accusation. So there are liberals who use it against the left, you know, to delegitimize Mm -hmm. the project. And then I think there are people on the left, especially on the far left, who give that argument too much of the benefit of the doubt. They kind of assume it's coming from a place of good faith Mm -hmm. um, because they know, you know, the history of the left is imperfect when it comes to combating oppressions that we perceive to be non-economic or not reducible to economics. So because people on the far left know that, they tend to be very anxious and very concerned about how they're perceived by the liberal left that's attacking social democratic reforms. And Mm -hmm. I think the, the mistake here is politically is seeing those attacks from the liberals and from the center as being in good faith. And so what ends up happening is creating a void, if you will, of actually defending social democratic or universalist programs and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's politically. Philosophically, I think that bifurcation in which you kind of notice those two diverging trends that you observed is a sort of a part of a problem. Like mm-hmm. the, the Marxist left up until the neoliberal period would have never dreamed of actually separating those things like Mm -hmm. all Mm anti-colonial struggles 
anti-racist struggles, feminist struggles from the perspective of the left up until that period would have conceded all of the points that like resolving economic problems and contradictions are not also going to simultaneously resolve every other social problem. But mm-hmm. the one thing they they also took for granted was that you had to go through the class structure and combat class inequality to address any of these problems. And that the lack of common sense about that point, the fact that that's been so lost and it's it's just it's absolutely not the common sense anymore. We have this awkward way of being like, well, we need both and as opposed to like a political mm-hmm. strategy that kind of that confronts capital in the 21st century. This is like a, a set of conceptual problems that I'm interested in. Like, why is it mm-hmm. like, how can we, you know, just re- rethink the, the issue? Because I, I think the whole setup of it is um, deeply misleading and not helpful. So, yeah. And I'm really curious where this, dis- where this split, like what's motivating the split in this kind of way, because I'm sympathetic to what you're saying that like, it seems like a very arbitrary split to me. It seems like there is like, you know, a a pretty substantial feedback loop between like Mm -hmm. the social and the material in this kind of way. And that like, it's a bit arbitrary to, I think, try to exclude either side from it or try to even treat them as like cleanly separable in a lot of contexts. But like, so why is that happening in the history of these conversations is it like you know from my education perspective there's almost this feeling that like well we have to teach a narrative of left philosophy and so we're going to teach this narrative that goes you know first there's Marx and his materialism and then there are critiques of Marx by Bordeaux and other people like that and like then those critiques become even more identity based uh, you know with the social justice stuff and like they want to like convey this progression arc trend kind of thing. Yes, they want yeah. to convince us that we just started thinking about oppression in the eighties, which is false. Right, and like, do you feel like that's because like, you know, theorists want to be um, significant, and so they sort of place themselves as like being a key turning point in the narrative, or like, what do you feel like is going on behind all of this? Absolutely. I think that there is a sort of academic story that we need to tell about ourselves that is important to people standing in philosophy. Um, And that's not to say people haven't made genuine contributions and, and nuances, but there's a way in which moving theory forward is a part of how we create our marketability. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're simultaneously addressing real problems And we're also um, constructing a narrative about how we fit into those problems. And I think sometimes what is needed is to take stock of how that narrative has gone for us, whether or Mm -hmm. not it's it's caused new problems, which is often the case. So, um, and this isn't unique to this debate about class reductionism. It's the case in all philosophy. I think that when, when your career sort of depends on making interventions and kind of constructing a story about how your, why your intervention needs to be made, it stands mm-hmm. to reason that later people need to also like, will have to take stock of the responses to your intervention and what's been lost mm-hmm. and so on. And this is how scholarship goes. So there's a kind of, um, this is just how things go dynamic to it, but then there's also a political dynamic to it where um, I think that the new left 
took for granted that class politics existed. I think they took for granted that social democracy was there. I think they saw the stodgy trade union bureaucracies and they thought, well, they're not going anywhere. So you could construct mm -hmm. these theories about how we have to go beyond that. Like the, the persistent phrase in all of the literature is we have to go beyond it, beyond, beyond, beyond. If I hear that word one more time, I just, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start to lose it. You should get beyond the word beyond <laughs> is what you're saying, right? Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble. I'm going to start to lose, the, lose it over here. But like, you know. The, but this the, show the, is this, all about getting people canceled. That's yeah. That's what we do here. Right. So the this move to constantly have this kind of haunting of class politics in the background that we constantly mm -hmm. need to supersede is very ironically situated within the neoliberal period because hmm. it's absolutely not the case that empirically in the social world, we can take those things for granted. Social democracy is collapsing. I say that sign of kind of hyperbolically, but it's not what it once was. Um, you know, I live in Germany. It's obvious to me that even in a decaying social democracy, the quality of life is superior and living here is easier than in the United States. But, you know, to the Germans, things are getting really bad, you know, so, but, and mm -hmm. then in the U S there's never been, um, a labor party and, and all of these things. And, you know, the union density is like 10%. So what I politically, the sort of ironic twist in all of this and the new left legacy is that we have to go beyond class reductionism at the same time that there is no class politics or reductionism to go beyond. Like there is a void there absolutely in mm. terms of understanding political, economy. And so what we're talking about are debates in which we're debating each other about class reductionism when the dominant politics, like the hegemonic politics, are liberal identity politics. Um, and they have become increasingly mainstream and in the center. And the left seems to tail, in my opinion, seems to tail that, um, knowing it's insufficient, but not wanting to say like we need and an independent ideological kind of pole of attraction that relies less on that narrative. So because people mm -hmm. are anxious about not tending too much uh, enough to oppression and, and I think that's a good impulse, but I think at this point, you know, the, the discourse has evolved in a way where like we're overcorrecting for a problem that isn't there. Um, mm -hmm it's not there in the way that it was in the seventies. Does that make sense? It does. And I think, you know, from an American history perspective, I could totally imagine how there could be a variety of forces that would encourage this kind of behavior. So for example, right, the red scares that made socialism mm -hmm. and communism such a, you know, like a horrible concept in America coming around a time where also, I think you could argue there was increased traction for you know racial identity politics as it like something that more people could get behind like a little bit right at least as you get out of like the 60s and such and so you know you could you could see how well-meaning lefty progressives seeing all of the opposition to discussion of socialism would then sort of focus their energy on you know progress of equal rights for marginalized communities in that identity kind of way but i also like i'm very much sympathetic to your concern about the potential downstream harms of you know sort of using this kind of narrative of of like we have uh, ascended to a next level of social justice or something like that because i think you know what i see i'm, I'm spend a lot of time 
being concerned about the way that these conversations filter out of academia and into the culture wars. Mm -hmm. And what I see are a lot of, you know, anti-social justice folks, a lot of anti-woke or, or, you know, just trade up conservatives, right. Um, you know, taking up the narrative that the current phase of social justice is somehow separate and a world apart from the history of social progress that preceded it. Um, and they will point to, you know, this increased emphasis on identity and such as the way that we can distinguish between what you're, you know, sort of calling the new left versus like classic left movements. But like from a, from an ethics perspective, you know, my feeling is that, um, all of this is part of the expansion of the moral community that ha has, been, has been going on for hundreds of years, I would say, imperfectly, right, obviously, very inconsistently, but like that it's, it's all part of the same movement towards more just societies and attempts and, and like dividing it up in these kinds of ways, I think, gen tends to do more harm than good, it seems like. Are you sort of sympathetic in that kind of space? What's the... Um... So when you say expansion of the moral community, can you say more of what you mean by that? Yeah, and I'm, it's a complicated picture that's been making more complicated for me the more that I've moved away from just reading analytic philosophy of ethics and reading, like, colonial sure. knowledge production, right? Um, but, like, you know... <sighs> To give, again, the 2D version of it, right, it's the story that um, someone like Peter Singer tells in his animal liberation stuff where he says, like, you know, during the Enlightenment period or around this time, right, there starts to be more discussion on who counts as a person and the nature of personhood and that it starts to expand with enfranchisement of women and people of color that these become seen as you know members of the moral community in this kind of way um and that that, that kind of expansion is then in theory continuing with concerns about animal welfare about the environment about you know potentially artificial entities in the future etc cetera, etc cetera. that it's this sort of process that begins with uh once you start to recognize that more than just you know cis white men count as persons it becomes very difficult to like stop the expansion of that that kind of consideration totally and i i think that um we shouldn't stop the expansion of that kind of consideration I just think that that expansion sits sort of ironically and perhaps mm -hmm. in a contradictory way with the continuing development of the social structure in which we live. So for sure, for sure, some some taking stock of that, I think, is what is required. And this kind of constant retroactive um, critical reflection on working class people and the poor as being those who have most inadequately understood this moral expansion is a, a kind of weird moralism mm -hmm. that I've never been particularly comfortable with. So like the, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like there's a way in which we understand, we become increasingly inclusive and then we look at past movements for their inadequacies and in understanding our current way of looking at inclusivity and we think that we always have to supersede them and there's mm -hmm. a way in which like yeah the people didn't see the things that we see today all the time but um 
I think that when you have an academic and intellectual culture that's so detached from some of the material conditions that are actually facing working people and the poor, it can become a sort of um, dis, uh, uncomfortable and I, I've been calling it ironic uh, inclusion without mm-hmm, mm-hmm. structural change. And I think mm-hmm. that that needs to be um, accounted for, which shouldn't stop people from being critical of those who are unwilling to engage in more inclusive practices. But that doesn't mean that, you know, mm-hmm. we don't still need to, like, sort people out and build p- political constituencies for distribution, bread and butter issues, healthcare, all of these things remain uh, centrally important. So yeah, this irony sort of thing that you're pointing to here is something that I've been I've been wrestling a lot with because I really, you know, like my upbringing is one of classic liberal progressivism in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, raised by by hippies who were like also very marxist, like they, you know, we we talked about you know, our family's Marxist backgrounds in in the Bronx and things like that, right? Um, <laughs> but, like, I also just, you know, generally adopted the basic idea of, like, social progress towards greater inclusivity and all these other kinds um, of ideas. And, like, now, I mean, so, for example, right now I'm in the midst of writing a paper about Lovecraft Country and colonialism, and it's involved, you know, a lot of research into colonial knowledge production and you know, ethical philosophers do not come up well in a lot of that research. You know, Mm -hmm. you find folks like Kant, who I I think we can argue did really important work for like the progression of the understanding of autonomy and like moral responsibility and all these things. And at the same time is promoting these, um, you know, views of races as being, um, while members of the same species, different kinds of races and like having different abilities and like some of them not being full persons as a result. So it's like, um, you know, I want, there's another concept that I've been playing with a lot and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. It's kind of like a paradox of progress that I often experience Mm -hmm. when I talk about this stuff where I'm like, at the same moment, I can look at the sort of gestalt and say, look, there's obvious progress here, right? There used to be legal slavery in America. And now, you know, besides prisons and all these other situations, right? In theory, there's like less legal slavery in America. And that looks like progress. But at the same time, it also is that that what you're saying about that reproduction of the systems that always feels like you know, is the is there really progress or is it just the old system getting a new coat of paint and, and sort of continuing on along its way? So I'm curious how you wrestle with that particular challenge. I don't know. I mean, I have to be honest that I used to take for granted that the progress narrative was sort of inherently colonial. And I still do in the sense of the modernity, like the modernization mm-hmm. thesis. Like I think that's inherently colonial. Um but I think you'll find out there's a, an episode that we've done on Kant in on what's left of philosophy where we actually end up talking about some of these progress issues. So maybe we can cross-pollinate okay. for, the, for the listeners. But um, <laughs> I, I genuinely wonder like, if the reaction against any idea of progress as being inherently colonial or racist mm-hmm. is um, – like to me, there it's like you don't have to convince me that Kant was a racist. That sounds like a fact. Um, mm-hmm. And then other people argue, like for a much stronger interpretive thesis, that the way that he perceived his own philosophy was a racial project, and that seems plausible to me. Like I'm not an mm-hmm. expert in it, um, but that seems like a very viable hypothesis. 
Um, but then there, when I ask myself, like, is any idea of progress, like, intrinsically terrible? Well, I think that I want to say, like, no. Like, can't we just not do that other stuff? Like, mm-hmm. when I start saying that things can get better, like, when I started seeing the formation of a political left in the United States for the, you know, one that had the potential for mass politics for the first time in my life in 2015, I was like, holy shit, things could get better. And when I say Mm -hmm, things could mm -hmm. get better, like we could have a W, we could win something in this country for (laughs) the working class and the poor. I thought like, that's a normative judgment. Like I think things get better Mm -hmm. and maybe it's not better actually even relative to some other point in time in which there were more social programs. I don't know. Like it might not be an absolute judgment, but some kind of regulative ideal of like, we can improve things for people seems to be sort of important. And I'm not any longer as convinced that like thinking that things can get better has to be a colonial um, project or something. So I, I think it's worth disambiguating some of the levels that are at stake there because there are certain things about what you said about progress that I find just incontestable, like Mm -hmm. that is used in a, for, um, to justify colonialism and racial projects but I'm also not convinced that like any possible conception of progress in the future has to also be the same. Yeah, great. I think this is so fascinating um, because, you know, the other one of the things that I am on about a lot is moral realism and trying to encourage folks on the left, uh, especially atheists, to be more on board with the idea of objective moral claims. And I think what you're talking about here is has to do with the anxiety around asserting objective moral claims, essentially saying that certain things really just, or like, you know, like um, if not moral, at least evaluative claims at least, like certain states are better for people than other states of being, right? Living in a society that isn't a patriarchy, I think I would argue is objectively better than living in a society that is a patriarchy. But I think a lot of folks are on the left get anxious about that. And the anxiety goes back to kind of, like you're saying, the, the, the history of colonial anthropology that portrayed you know members of the patriarchal society as being you know inferior or monsters or all these sorts of things while also obviously still being part of patriarchal society um but like you know and so it was a natural response in that time i think a a valuable corrective to say well look if we're going to talk about these individuals if we're going to study if we're going to try to learn about these other cultures we need to set aside our moral prejudices some to do that work um but i think that expanded out and became a general fear of speaking ill of any other culture and like of the like any moral claim that would even implicitly suggest that like cultures that don't move towards what we are trying to move towards are sort of regressive or harmful or something like that. Um, But I do think we have to make those claims on the left. We have to say that like regressing towards greater white nationalism would be an objectively bad thing. And like societies that support that are, are doing something wrong. Um, Do you, is that sort of where your intuitions are shifting as well? Well, I haven't done a lot of thinking about moral realism, but I Mm -hmm. I do think that there does seem to me to be a difference between forming, um, inform between having informed and respectful judgments of other contexts 
mm-hmm. which you actually see the people that you are in, in dialogue with who are living in a context and where they're facing certain kinds of oppression as moral equals and forming similar judgments in which you do not, in fact, see them as moral equals. To me, mm-hmm. whatever um, one comes to think about the kind of claims you just made about what's objectively a moral factor, what's what's not, it would seem to me that there's a qualitative difference between those, those two ways of ethical thinking. Um, mm-hmm. When you are engaging with people about the problems they're facing in their society, whether that's sexism, racism, class oppression, um, foreign intervention, and so on, um, you can engage with those problems in a way that in which you are actually considering your interlocutors as moral equals and wondering what affects them and how and how they're thinking about it and the reason and those are going to suggest reasons to you for how you should think about it based on what they mm-hmm. also think you know like a basic moral norm of reciprocity um or you're just going to engage mm-hmm. with them and like how could like how could anybody in this situation think anything other than what I think? And that's probably going to be the kind of false universalism that people are rightly um, skeptical of. Absolutely. And I've, I've found really valuable in the past year reading all of this like critical theory and like feminist theory and such um, the way that they kind of um, raise problems for sort of like the monolithic ethical analyses that I would have been, I think more sympathetic to, previously um and like helped help me you know better understand the ways that those anthro you know anthropological analyses were used as a pretext to like you know do a bunch of violence against um men of color supposedly to be protecting women of color from them or something like that for example um so i really i do think it is is very important to bring a kind of pluralism and a kind of um desire to understand details rather than have these kind of universalist monolithic approaches to those different kinds of culture then i think you know i think that's something that um capital t theory can help um analytic philosophy get better about because i think we do tend to slip into that kind (laughs) of approach fairly easily um Great. So if, if it's all right, I'd like to switch gears here a little bit um, because there was another topic that I wanted to talk about with you uh, um, that came up when I was listening to y'all's, uh, one of y'all's episodes. I think it was about um, Althusser. Uh, and this is sort of the issue of agency in the kind of philosophy of, of social, you know, context stuff that, um, you know, is particularly interesting to me because I have a bunch of interest in theories about free will. Um, and I think there is overlap here, but maybe there's possibly also differences. I'm not sure. And I'm curious, sort of, what is your, first of all, just like very basic, what is your understanding of the concept of agency as it's used in sort of social literature? So I think the the first way to answer this I, is what the meaning of agency perhaps is in contexts that are not philosophical Mm -hmm. because the concept does get used in philosophy and um, you're interested in free will. And my intuition is that these are actually pretty different conversations and maybe I'll tell you what I think is being done with the concept of agency 
And then maybe you can tell me how you think that relates to the discussion about free will. So um, I think that the idea of agency sort of takes free will or the existence of it, like either for granted or it's agnostic about it. So like in sociology, agency sort of describes the ability or the capacity of, of human agents to not merely be the product of structural positions or cultural mm-hmm. codes. Mm-hmm. So agency is sort of counterposed to structure. And um, this happened, the, the preoccupation with agency happened in um, a period in which the, the sort of move away from grand narratives of history, like the philosophy mm-hmm. of history and like a meta meta sense um, and also was involved with a rejection of structural functionalism. Like there's a mm-hmm. sociologist called Talcott Parsons who had like, I don't know, 20 years in the sun. And then people decided that he wasn't, um, wasn't <laughs> all that. And, um, didn't keep his theories fresh enough. That's, you know, you got to keep updating. Right. So it, <laughs> it maybe if, if you have questions about what structural functionalism is, I can get into that, but I'll just tell the, tell the narrative that, because there is this kind of attack on these structuralist ways of thinking mm-hmm. um, and this rejection of grand narratives, sociology is now like preoccupied with like mid-range theories is what they call them. And hmm. everyone is basically providing details regarding how people react to circumstances and what's constrained about their reactions and in actions and kind of what's residual, like what isn't fully constrained, mm-hmm. is the agency. You know, mm-hmm. so you can imagine a working mom who has to go to work to survive. She goes to work every day. She doesn't have a lot of resources for childcare. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe some of the creative things she does to like create to. Um, make sure that her child can uh, have the resources they need to, to learn or different forms of engagement from family members or for, from friends or, or whatever. Um, that's like her agency, like the thing that's mm-hmm. kind of left it. Like there's the thing she has to do and then there are the things that she does to kind of cope with it. And I think that there's not a huge effort at the moment to understand the sources of this agency so that's why I think it's agnostic about whether or not there's free will. Like, um, mm-hmm. so there's not a, a basis really to question like the structure of reality in the same sense. So like this could all be very compatible with a determinist view, or you could think the emphasis could be on like that residual of like the things that are not fully determined. And you could be like, that's free will. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's an agnosticism there. Does, if that, does that help? Make sense of where the thing about agency is coming from. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I'm so I do have I'll I'll work my way towards it. This theory that some some of what is being hung on agency by some people is the same kind of responsibility that people want to hang on the philosophical idea of free will. And that's why I think there's an important connection here. But let me before we get there. um, So, yeah, I think. I I understood agency very similar to what you've described here, which is that like it was this 
um, attempt to explain. Um, so, so like the structuralist views that you were describing come along and say, here's why mm -hmm. society keeps reproducing itself over and over again, right? Why the poor stay poor and the rich stay rich, right? And it's mm -hmm. an explanation of the transferring of, of cultural reproduction, I think is like the term that some of these folks will use. Um, and then like what agency is doing, as I understand it, is that's the space where cultural production right where the individual chooses to to in some, in some way chooses to like freely produce their own reality rather than just have it be reproduced for them by society so like in the example of the um the mother that you were describing right i could, I could think of like rather than sitting the child down in front of television that you know, or nowadays, right, YouTube videos that re reproduces a bunch of harmful ideas, right? She engages in storytelling time with the student or the child where the two of them make up their own narratives that are, you know, and, and like, then, of course, the problem is those narratives are still happening within a society and are therefore, to some extent, probably still reproducing. So like the reproduction gets caught up within the agency. And then we have these hard questions about like, can we really disentangle the agency from those kind of factors? Is that is that sort of similar to how you understand the concept? Yeah, I think that that is basically what people mean. It's kind of like, I think that the idea of agency at this point is sort of highly moralized because mm -hmm. and and i think illicitly so so hmm. um the the idea that people aren't fully determined by the social structure around them or their position this feels like it's important to people because they want to show there's a history of you know doing history from below telling stories mm -hmm. about how oppressed people make history and are not just the passive victims of history where like Absolutely. great men mm -hmm. make it make make the real stuff happen. And that I think is a fundamental insight. Like it is true that like all of the people in the society they reproduce it and they also challenge it. And mm -hmm. it's very worthwhile it's 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 a service done to the scope of intellectual knowledge to be able to see the the full spectrum of the ways in which people respond to social structure and that the protagonists of the social structure are not always the oppressors. Like, I think that's fundamentally hmm. important. However, be there, there became a focus on kind of finding agency everywhere is kind of like a moral validation as opposed mm -hmm. to like a fact about the world that people are doing these things. So anytime you could kind of see oppressed people doing things that you didn't know they were doing before, then it would be like they're exercising agency and I'm never quite sure what the implication of it is. Like that's how you mm -hmm. get expressions um, that imply that basically just living their lives is like a form of like militant resistance mm -hmm. to oppression. And if you're not acknowledging that or seeing that or fully appreciating that, then like there's something morally deficient about the theorist. Um, right. And so I think that what interests me about this conversation is like that first point where there's something unequivocally true that gets introduced into the conversation about social reproduction and sort of strategies of survival and, and often resistance, whether individually or collective, that's like important to understanding how the mm -hmm. social structure works. And then mm -hmm. there's this like additional claim that like those activities in themselves are somehow like 
morally vindicatory. And I think that's the discussion about like free will. Like we're not just mm-hmm. a reduction to the structure. Um, and I'm not sure what's at stake in that conversation, to be honest. It seems like a validating impulse as opposed to like an analysis of like, okay, these people are oppressed and of course they have agency. Like if they're alive, they have agency and they resist, they strategize, they, mm-hmm. they cope. Um, but like if all strategies to combat oppression were made equal, you'd see a lot less oppression in the world. So like there's a way in which I'm not quite understanding the um, the claim that's being made about like basically everything is resistance. And I think it can become very diffuse in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a caricature that's a gloss on it, but I think mm-hmm. there's that exists. Well, no, I'm really glad that you brought up the sort of moralizing aspect of it because I've, I, I experienced that as well. And I, got, I sort of got the impression from listening to you talking about this on Left of Phil that like you've also maybe experienced sort of pushback from folks when you've talked about sort of things that undercut agency or, you know, ways in which people don't have agency, that there's almost this implication that you are you are the one depriving them of agency by theorizing in such a way that you you, you would claim that they don't have it in that particular situation, that it's like, uh, you know, and, and there there is a part of that that I can be sympathetic to, and maybe we can get to this about, like, mm-hmm. is there value in telling people they have agency even when they don't because it helps them enact their their views better or something like that and in that situation maybe you know theorizing that someone doesn't have agency really does actually deprive them of it or something but it really often just feels like and this is what it made me think of the free will debate it it feels very similar to me to the way that when i talk about the lack of free will at some point people will be like oh well so you're just saying that like nobody has any influence on everything and like we're all totally powerless and just like sitting around and should just be lumps or something like that which is i think not you know it's it's more like what you were saying where it's like look there are facts of the matter about you know the way that people interact with society and some of that can look agentival um and then that is a sort of separate question from how much that appearance of agency actually tracks sort of genuine freedom. So, okay, I'll try to, there's one thing you said about sort of, I don't think it does Mm -hmm. any good to like deny that people have agency. Like Mm -hmm. that's, I think it's implausible. I think it's a truism that they do. Um, And I think that the sort of the racist and sexist and colonial narratives implied that there were these passive victims of, Mm -hmm or people who were not, didn't have sufficient capacities to um, know what was being done to them was wrong and so on and so forth. And so like the resistance aspect and the agency aspect of um, these grand narratives, in particular, the modernization progress narrative that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. this got, um, this has rightfully been been challenged because Um, It's obviously the case that people who are oppressed, people don't like being oppressed. I mean, like, I know that's a trite (laughs) thing to say, but they don't like it. They don't like being colonized. They don't like being occupied and they don't like being treated with disrespect or as being subhuman in any capacity. So people in general, I think, know that they are oppressed Mm -hmm. or that what's being done to them is fucked up, even if they're not clear on like the sources of it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So People have agency, but I think the broader 
problem with when I say I'm not sure what's at stake and making that claim now mm-hmm. is that like when I say it's it's moralized and I'm not sure what's like what we're still pushing at with that is that in philosophy there's been a 50-year counter movement against grand narratives of that kind um and I from what you say like in analytic philosophy it seems that there have been fewer inroads but in my corner of philosophy this counter movement against those narratives is sort of taken for granted um, mm-hmm. And I think this has created some distortions at, in what it is at stake in talking about structural constraints like at all. Mm-hmm. So if it's the case that I say that capitalism prevents poor people from living good lives and then I'm thereby accused of neglecting their agency, um, right. and then this seems like a moral argument that I don't value their efforts to live good lives, lives against the, the odds, that's what I'm not sure like at that point, I'm not sure what I'm talking about because mm-hmm. like from a philosophical view, the point of agency um, w- is sort of re- redundant in like understanding what is wrong with the oppression. So like mm-hmm. if structures constrain a person's actions, then resisting the scope of that constraint is just that's what follows if people don't don't like it, you know, when they, they try to um, get along or they try to mm-hmm. change their circumstances within constraints. So I think for me, what's normatively at stake is freedom and not just like the fact of agency. Um, Mm. And I think like in the sense of having some evaluation of whether or not a set of social arrangements is morally justifiable, um, that we can live in together without being subject to arbitrary power. um, That's Mm -hmm. not the same thing as saying that like we should be able to do whatever we want. Like we mm-hmm. have to have some kind of evaluation of why the the scope of what we can and can't do to each other is morally right or wrong. And and if it's wrong, then we need to fix it. So um, mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. way, does that sort of make, create the context for like why I find this debate sort of yeah. um, ambiguous? I, yeah, I know. And I'm very sympathetic to all of this. Like I think, you know, I, I always will talk about like with the free will stuff, I will say, you know, I talk about control and I would say, you know, you don't have, you have control in a, like, um, in a thin sense, right. I can pick up things around me. I can, you know, go to, go to my job or something like that. Um, but in the like robust sense of control that would be needed to have free will, I don't think we have that. And so I think similarly here, I would say, you know, there is agency in the sense of people fighting back, right. Obviously there is agency in that sense. Um, the question is, what are the implicate as you say sort of what are the larger meta meta ethical implications of that agency so for, so another big concern and this this will sort of get at your concerns about like you know what are the what are the implications of this conversation one of the ways i see it play out in online discourse is um you know the the claims that there is agency in these individuals lives is taken up by conservatives as a way to say, well, if there's agency, then they have responsibility and they are partly to blame if they do not change their station or something like that, yeah. right? That like much the same way that I find um, conservatives will tend to believe more in free will because they think that people can, you know, that, that like luck is not the driving force in people's lives the way I think it is. Um, and that like, the difference between success and failure is just how hard you worked or something, right? They will, I think, similarly 
approach these ideas of agency and say, you know, look, see, people people have the ability to resist. If they're not resisting, then clearly they don't want it bad enough or something like that, right? Where I would say it's just that, like, all of these circumstantial forms of luck and things are, you know, coming together to, like, undercut their ability to have something anywhere close to genuine agency. Um, do you feel like that that makes sense in terms of something that is at stake here and like a potential risk that could come from an overemphasis on agency by the left? Yeah, you got it. I think that there's a an obvious sort of seeding of territory that people are not willing to confront the political right that leaves the the left ideologically ill-equipped to answer questions um, mm -hmm. and to combat their arguments. Um, in an, an effective way. So like it create like if agency is the focus, you kind of have to like the agency has to be normatively good in order to be defensible. But oppressed people do bad things. That's that's mm -hmm. something things that you don't think people should do. And that shouldn't be an obstacle. Um, so if the right draws attention to that, shouldn't be an obstacle to you making an argument that we need to change the conditions under which people um, are in have incentives to do bad things instead of good things. Um, and I mm -hmm. think the strength of structural analyses and of the left historically is to be able to change the conversation um, to not focus on um, the moral quality of individuals because from the political right, that ends up being a focus on individuals that is de facto a blaming of whole, whole groups. And the mm -hmm. left needs to do the opposite do the opposite. And I mm -hmm. think that right now um, we tend to avoid these, these problems. So like the, the arguments about crime, for example, mm -hmm. um, what produces crime? Poverty produces crime. Under-resourced neighborhoods produce crime. Um, having no opportunities for jobs that give you a good enough quality of life compared to what you would get by committing crimes. Um, mm -hmm. We have a left right now that doesn't want to talk about crime because we're afraid of blaming the victim, but the left or but the right talks about crime. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that this kind that that not confronting them by having a better story about the sources of, for example, violent crime is a very serious ideological weakness. And it's going to come back to bite the left in the ass. I don't know what else to to say about that. So um, we got to get some structural thinking um, going on over here that's what i think as we're sitting here talking about culture reproduction and agency and the ways that it is um you know the way the way that i think uh, um discussion of agency essentially gets folded back into cultural reproduction i'm curious mm -hmm. what you would say about like if i pushed an argument that suggested um a lot of the moralizing of agency is very similar to the moralizing of merit that is attached to the kind of protestant work ethic that we see sort of in you know like in the sense that like you know you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps one way or another like they all have this kind of common theme of um you know the agent being able to determine their own destiny to some extent and with that right these are implications that if you haven't increased your merit if you haven't risen in station again it's a failure on your part right because we all agreed that you had agency um yes i don't i think that that's correct so mm -hmm. the when you talk about agency in that kind of individualized way 
or in a narrative that de facto validates agency is like something there, there's a normative architecture to your discussion of agency. So when we talk about merit in that context, in the context mm-hmm. of like labor market competition or whatever, um, the idea that you have a choice and that you can be an agent, that there, there's all kinds of um, moral qualifications to what we mean by that, that are already um, seen as legitimate by virtue of what the social structure, like agents with people who have succeeded in that structure or people um, who just, you know, ideologues and so on. There's already a, a kind of baseline legitimacy given to the idea that that way of evaluating things is good. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if you're on the political left, you should be aware that that way of evaluating things is not illegitimate just because it's conceptually incoherent in and of itself, which is, I think, also true about merit, but um, mm-hmm. that it is a part of a structure that reproduces these ideological justifications. And if you just invert them and say, ah, well, I'm never appreciated for you know, my merit that, that I, that the, um, we don't need any concern for, for merit because it's a totally, uh, illegitimate thing that only benefits some people. Well, you're just kind of like tit for tat, to be honest with you. We need to be able Mm -hmm. to talk about equality. We need to be able to talk about, um, expanding opportunities. We need to talk about having good jobs. We need to talk about the things that decrease the pressure on Mm -hmm. these kind of tit for tat analyses of who has merit and who doesn't. Um, and that I think is, you know, I think that's the job of the left and the fact that it's been relinquished is, um, I think it's coming back to be fair, but I think mm-hmm. that the fact that for so many decades, again, I, ironically in the neoliberal era, um, that style of analysis has been relinquished, has been basically a disservice and it's allowed academics to kind of think they have the ideological and moral high ground within universities but the um, the the ideological uh, legitimation of inequality has continued unabated outside of that context. And now that there is a broader prep platform for left wing ideas, people are woefully inequipped to to counter it. And um, that that concerns me politically as well as philosophically. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's much mystery to like what it takes to increase a person's agency in the way that we're talking about here? Like, is there anything more to this than like radical redistribution of wealth, greater, you know, treatment of people as, as, you know, having the dignity of a person and like, um, you know, basic freedom to live people's lives as they see fit? Are there other like factors that you feel like are important for agency that aren't being included in these equations? Oh, yes. I think actually agency is deeply important. I just don't think agency in this kind of more freewheeling way is in this moralized way is that important. So Mm -hmm. um, one problem with liberal thinking, um, you know, just talking about we need, you know, I know I just said free more opportunities are good. But one liberal standard of talking about this is, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. what we need is free, you know, equality of opportunity. We need more fairness Mm -hmm. and so on. Well, those kinds of norms, they don't actually answer the the question. Like they might be good, you know, but they're not Mm -hmm. answering the question of why um, people don't feel that they're in a position to like make that a reality. And I do think that philosophically thinking about the ways in which agency is constrained 
um, why some people think some things are feasible and not others is absolutely an integral part of understanding um, political economy specifically, which mm-hmm. is my area of interest, but also um, any relevant uh, area of life in which people are oppressed. I just don't think that the normative critique of that can be at the same level in which um, it is justified and legitimated um, from within mm-hmm. the structure itself. I think you have to kind of see the constraints for what they are and develop some kind of like normative perspective that sees it more from the position of the whole. And I think if you don't do that, then that's the relinquishing of ideological territory that I'm worried about. But for do a political th- actor, like mm-hmm. something that you have absolutely got to do is understand where like, you know, this is the expression where people are at, but I mean that I'm dead serious about that. You have to understand the reason that people don't want to join a union is not because they're just so ideologically disposed against unions. They're so conservative that you'll just never do it because they hate blah, blah, blah. Like, it's not that. Mm -hmm. It might be, Mm -hmm. but you can move them if you understand what they're afraid of. If you understand why they feel that this is not a viable option for them at this time. Um, so if you're actually interested in changing the world, you do have to care about people's agency. I just think there's got to be a little shift in perspective. And that's that's fascinating because what you were saying there is the exact arguments that I make when I defend the no free will view, which is that like you actually can do better at helping people if you don't view them as these like radically separated souls inside of a person that's like making some sort of radically mm-hmm. free choices if you see them as these kinds of entities that are caught up in these you know systems and are are being heavily influenced by them so i think i think it's interesting that we come to a sort of convergence about um yeah. pushback now i'm curious do you think psychologically at this point that human beings that, that we at least uh the the weirds of the world right the the, the heavily westernized people um can psychologically separate these ideas of agency from like, um, you know, the kind of moralizing that we're talking about here after all these years of like being told that freedom is the most important thing and like glorifying that as a moral end and all these things, you know, is there, and is is it the purpose is the function. So let me ask is, um, if we're going to do that, are we going to have to do it from a social angle, right? Where we, we use the superstructure in a sense to change people's psychological um, approaches to agency merit uh, morality, et cetera. I don't know. I'm optimistic, actually, despite mm. my sort of um, somewhat polemical attitude towards the way things are currently discussed. But I actually see myself as a symptom of, of changes. I mean, I'm not the only person who's having these kinds of thoughts at this time. Actually, like in the background, there's lots of philosophers who are like, hmm, Mm. things are changing like we should we should re rethink some of this stuff and rejuvenate the socialist project rejuvenate structural analysis to you know confront some legitimate criticisms that were were made of that way of thinking like my 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 uh, attempt to say that we need to like re-engage some structural thinking is taking mm-hmm. for granted lots of excellent criticisms that were made of that tradition you know i, I just think it's time to move on from beating a dead horse as it were and, and try to uh, <laughs> have a reconstructive project. Um, But having said that, I I think that that's a symptom of a shift. I think that um, 
there's only so much philosophers themselves can do, but we can contribute to clarifying problems. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just worth reflecting on the fact that our ideas of what freedom is have changed over time. So like there's an excellent book by this guy, um, McGilvery is his last name, I think, but he wrote a book called The Invention of Market Freedom. And um, he, he talks about the transition from a Republican conception of freedom to a liberal one. Mm -hmm. And there's been a sort of Republican revival in um, philosophy, political philosophy and thinking about what it means to say we need to live in a free society as opposed to thinking about mm -hmm. freedom as being constrained to individual actors on, on the market and sort of self the aggregation of self-interest being what we mean by freedom. Um, there's an alternative out there and maybe we can reconstruct the alternative. Like maybe there is a different way of thinking mm -hmm. about freedom. And the thing is, is because these shifts have happened in the past, I'm optimistic that they can happen in the future, but I do think they will require, um, some ideological, um, intervention on the part of people to, uh, philosophers, theorists, um, you know, people in the media to try to, move the needle on people's intuitions that the way we think about freedom now is not the right way. Mm -hmm. And if that makes sense. So I, I do think mm -hmm. that it's possible to shift people's perception of things. It's funny that you mentioned Republicanism. I just had a cloud someone who self-identified as a classical Republican uh, on the show a little while ago. And he was talking about sort of huh. how that, do how that doesn't mean what Americans think it means when they hear that word. Um, no, but no. You also mentioned, I was glad that you brought up sort of someone who you were pointing to because I wanted to wrap up here because we're running out of time with maybe if you wanted to direct folks to anyone else who you would say is a good resource on discussions at agency or on your sort of social economy stuff that you are um, particularly interested in if anybody wanted to dive deeper on either of these topics. Well... That's a good question. The, the question about agency is hard to answer, to be honest with you, because it's so in, ingratiated into like the, the neoliberal era of scholarship that it's sort of difficult to pick out like a book that makes this point. So mm -hmm. um, the argument that structuralist thinkers didn't consider agency enough can be found in any number of postmodern um sources. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that maybe listeners of the podcast might be familiar with some of that. I know on what's left of philosophy, we did an, an episode on um, hegemony and socialist strategy, Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Leclau. Um, and of course, they argue basically that the stodgy Marxists, you know, didn't consider the plural subjectivities that could emerge in mm -hmm. the world. So there's a, a lot episode. of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. oh, I do you. recommend that episode as one for folks who want to like listen to more more on this topic. I think, yeah, yeah. So there there's a number of things like that. But as far as um, a discussion about freedom, um, a good friend of mine just wrote a book. Um, James Muldoon. He he wrote a book about the German Council movement that just came out this year, mm -hmm. and um, it's about basically like a socialist republicanism. Um, Alex Gurvich wrote a book called um, From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth that was about a sort of working class Republican history in the United States. Um, people have reconstructed Marx as a Republican thinker. And I think there's also interest in figures like Frederick Douglass and C.L.R. James as Republican thinkers. Mm -hmm. So 
it's out there. We're doing it. We're okay. we're talking about freedom. <laughs> I love it, and I I, um, yeah. I will try. Mary Wollstonecraft to, uh... is another one. Yeah. Um, who oh, yeah, is normally go. interpreted as a liberal, but um, someone wrote a, a nice book about her that argued that she was a Republican feminist in the era of the French Revolution. So mm, very interesting. Well, I will I will do my best while I'm out here telling people that they don't have free will not to bigfoot over all of your work on on freedom and agency on this side of things. I think it, right. I do feel like after having this conversation that there is a lot of overlap in our concerns mm -hmm. and in a lot of our approaches. Um, and it's always funny to me the way that academic language sort of gets a little messy from one field to another like this sometimes. Right. Yeah. We well, may or may not be talking about the same thing sometimes. Yeah, right. Right. It so it's always like good are. to ask. Right. It's good to check. Um, right. So this has been lovely. Now, unfortunately, I have to torture you. Uh, so this okay. is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only choices. You cannot hedge. You do not get to explain what you mean by real or not real. Your only options, real or not real. Do you understand? Yes. All right. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So first of all, just to check, let's find out, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. So, the external world, real or not real? Real. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Mm. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Mm. Real. Genders. Real. Races. Real. Species. Real. Morality. Real. Rights. Real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Not real. No, real. Just kidding. <laughs> Can't decide. I waffle. I waffle. Uh, okay. <laughs> Where do you settle? Real. So is it, that real is finally. I'm, set I'm settling on real. Yes. Okay. Great. Society. Not real. Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Not real. Ooh, another chair sandwich divide. Uh, science. Real. Natural laws. Not real. Beauty. Real. Uh, love real causality real and finally time real okay you survived how do you feel great thank you <laughs> you were very chill through most of that i was very impressed um yeah the god the god won through me but i i'll side with my 
my former self as opposed to my agnostic present self. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, of course, I, ha I have to ask as, you know, for an atheist podcast like this, what, what is that is the waffling sort of that you you did have faith and you know, you're uncertain? Yeah, um, I grew up quite religious and mm -hmm. being an atheist is despite having thought quite a bit about it has never felt attractive to me, but I don't have a sufficient mm -hmm. reason for faith. Um, mm -hmm. So I simply, I, I'm going to side with, with real though. <laughs> That's fine. Regardless. <laughs> very, very good. I also appreciate you uh, splitting on chairs and sandwiches. I've um, been noticing an uptick on uh, people. Th those have, for, for your information, have been the most highly correlated of the two things. Anybody who really? believes that one is real tends to believe the other is real. Um, but I've noticed a recent uptick, I feel like, in people splitting on them, which I think is indicative of our post-truth, uh, post-reality world. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your data point. Right. No problem. Sandwiches, <laughs> not, not real, definitely. Okay. I, I, I respect your sandwich <laughs> anarchism. I'm actually very sympathetic to that taxonomical approach. So, um, right. Lillian, this has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time? Yeah, you can find me at my, my Twitter handle is L, Lil Sussurch, um, at And I have, I'm a co-host of the What's Left of Philosophy podcast and i'm currently working at the free university of berlin so you can find um find me there i've published in various academic journals and yeah thanks for Great. having me maybe when your um, book comes out well i can have you back on to flog at some yeah definitely thanks a lot no great thank you very much as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Uh, thanks, as always, to our new patrons, in this case, our newest yearly patron, Lindsay Osterman. Uh, I've opened that option up on Patreon for folks who are into that. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, CampQuest.org, 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 Chad T., Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Arc Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, take a deep breath and know you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.